0: To the currency. Welcome. I'm your host. I'm my guest, and glad to have you guys along. This is episode number 133 of the podcast, number 133. Uh, today, I've got something special for you. I have a guest uh, and, and a record setting guest at that. This guest has been with me the most times on the currency. No other guest has appeared as many times as this guest. Uh, that would be two times. And the guest is Myron Weber. Myron, the founder and president of. Northwood Advisors, welcome to the currency.
1: Thanks, Mike. It's great to be back. I didn't realize that uh, that I was breaking a record.
0: Yeah, yet, but I'm happy to to take the title for now. <laughs> it's uh, it's quite a title. I think it'll be hard to knock you off the, uh, the you know two under your belt. I mean, my goodness, you have got quite a lead. You've you're doubled anyone else. <laughs> oh goodness. Uh, I think we both talked about um, you know offline that. You know, we listened from time to time to a podcast called Econ Talk, and yep. uh, one of my uh, my favorite episodes are always when Russ Roberts, um, you know, professor of e- economics and now the president of, I think, Shalom College in Israel, Jerusalem. Uh, he has this buddy, Mike Munger, and the two of them, you know, Mike Munger is like his uh, guest that has appeared the most times. I I love the repartee between the two of them. It's just a great relationship, so... Maybe we're off to, uh, to something auspicious here, uh, you and I in this one. Uh,
1: I would love to uh, love to do that. Uh, as you know, I have had my own podcasts uh, in the past, uh, real-time decisions way back, I don't know, a decade, over a decade ago, and then more recently, Mental Supermodels, which is on indefinite hiatus. My, my uh, co-host Jeremy and I, between sort of what's going on with him, what's going on with me, we kept thinking we'd get it restarted, and that might happen, but like I said, we're on indefinite hiatus, so I miss podcasting, and uh, I think the danger for you is I might find insidious ways to weasel myself back into your podcast more often than you want to have me,
0: well, so uh, just be warned. I should have such problems in my life. I, By the way, Mental Supermodels is, from a branding perspective, just a phenomenal name. I mean, I just... If I were you, it would kill me that you're not. I mean, I know you love doing the podcast and I respect, you know, the reasons why you got to take a break. Some of the stuff is, you know, we're all doing these as a labor of love. And I I get like sometimes you can't do it. But what a phenomenal name from a branding perspective. It kills me uh, to think of that sitting on the shelf collecting dust. So you got to figure out a way to use that. But you're always welcome back. So do me a favor, just because you and I really have only had one other conversation, a public one. Um, Do you mind just telling folks a little bit about yourself before we. Jump into our discussion today.
1: Yeah, yeah, happy to. So, in my in my day job, in my my career, uh, as Mike said, I'm the the founder of Northwood Advisors, and we provide solutions to data problems for companies, mostly midsize and and large companies. And uh, if I could put in a shameless plug, we we have bandwidth and we're actively looking for clients now. So, we sometimes sort of write complex algorithms at the core of a business to solve a problem for a company that maybe has a complicated data problem and their expertise is not in that it's in in something else like jet engine maintenance in, in the case of one of our clients uh also we help companies that are trying to make the transition from sort of old ways of doing things with maybe even still running their a lot of their business on excel and trying to get to more modern applications and how to integrate data among applications. So uh, I'm pretty easy to find because Myron Weber happens to not be such a common name. So if you look on LinkedIn, there are not too many Myron Webers out there. And the company is Northwood Advisors at northwoodadvisors.com. Uh, it's by the way, advisors with an O-R-S on the end. So Northwood northwoodadvisors.com.
0: Is that as opposed to ERS advisors? Yeah,
1: yeah. Some some people think it's going to be an ERS, but it's it's an ORS. Yeah, I guess so. The,
0: the way we speak, I mean, you tend to say advisors. At least I do. I don't. I don't. Yeah. Like the, oh, that's good.
1: Yeah. So that's why I, I point that out. So that's kind of a, well, you know, what I do as far as the company. So my uh, my background. I've actually got an undergraduate degree in political science. Which, like most people, in that case, I don't actively use my <laughs> degree, although I love it. I have no regrets on that uh, uh, that choice, but uh, but I'm a, a programmer and really in, in the work that I do, I'm sort of half programmer and half consultant and, and I uh, really enjoy the work I do, but I'm also just kind of a, a general nerd and I really enjoy studying a lot of different topics from economics to psychology to history and the the approach to things of thinking about mental models is something that I unconsciously did throughout my life. And then about, uh, well, time flies. It's been about 15 years ago that through uh, some things that happened in, in a business setting, I started realizing that I did that and not everyone did it. And I started more consciously focusing on mental modeling as a discipline And, uh, and that's what then led to the mental supermodels podcast. And even though it's not active, we still have all the
0: episodes up there and I encourage folks to check it out. So just to unpack the phrase mental model, what is, what does that mean? I mean, I love the name mental supermodels because of the double, I guess, double entendre. I don't know if that's the right. Yeah. Um, you know, you have this picture of supermodels that are mentally insane. So mental supermodels, that's great but then obviously you're talking about something different. Uh, how would you define like what is the mental model for someone that's never really heard the phrase before or hasn't looked into it?
1: Yeah, thanks. It is really, I would say two, two ways of looking at mental modeling. So at the, at the abstract level, it's understanding the structures and functions of systems in a way that makes it simpler reality so that we can comprehend it. So in the same way that, uh, that a map is a representation of geography or territory, and as Baron von Clausewitz famously said, the map is not the territory, So we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking it's an exact representation. But on the other hand, that's a good thing because you can't understand the entire territory all at once. You can't roll the territory up and stick it in your pocket or uh, download it to your phone. So the fact that we have these abstractions that simplify reality but do so in a way that makes it useful uh, is a really good thing. And then the practical side of mental modeling, being able to apply it in the world in a way that we can then communicate it to other people that we can test things and see what works in a practical way and apply techniques that then become reusable patterns within the context of acting within the mental model
0: so you started about 15 years ago you said developing Your approach to super to mental models and say supermodels. What was your approach to supermodels? <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's what
1: great, <laughs> this in, podcast great is really, intimidation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, great intimidation is how I approach uh, supermodels. Uh, yeah, well, I'll just tell the this, this story real briefly. So I was actually. Uh, in a meeting, uh, called into a meeting with a large company. I didn't really know what the meeting was about. The sponsor, uh, it was a client. The sponsor asked me to come to a meeting. I had just very general idea of uh, what was going on, but I didn't really know who was in charge or or what was driving it. But uh, I showed up with a mental model in my head uh, of what I, of how I would approach this problem based on the little bit that I did know. Well, it turns out that everyone else who showed up to the meeting was in the same boat. No one really knew what to do. No one had prepared anything. No one was in charge. And so I just stepped forward and said, well, I have a mental model. And I went to the whiteboard and and started sketching things out and, and walked through it. And, uh, and it, it, it went well. And so at the end of the meeting, the, uh, the sponsor pulled me aside and said, well, "That was a, that was amazing. I've never seen anyone do anything like that. Tell me more about this mental model concept." And that's when I realized that there was something that was coming naturally to me that wasn't something that everyone else did naturally. Okay. So it wasn't something that I you know I haven't, don't have a degree in mental models or anything like that, but it's just something that I began at that time to consciously try to develop and be more aware of than, uh, than I had
0: been in the past. So let's, let's talk about that. Cause when, when uh, my ears are kind of perking up, I, you know, when I was younger, it was very hard to know who I was. And that sounds like a weird thing to say, but you kind of get into the business world and like, okay, you've studied certain things. Maybe, I don't know, maybe a family member said, Hey, you, you know, you ought to be a salesman cause you're a good talker. But you really don't know, uh, you don't, you don't really know your strengths and your weaknesses. So here you are in your career. You've got Northwood Advisors. You're doing these really complex projects where you're taking sophisticated, complex systems, maybe, uh, or or maybe not systems, but these aspects of a business that are complex, and then creating sim- systems that simplify them, collect data, dashboard, etc. H- how do you go from being you know this person starting their career to someone who knows what they're good at and knows what they're not good at and and what's your philosophy do you have a philosophy around that obviously you've had to say no to a bunch of things to be able to focus on you know what you're good at and and what you've become I'm just curious you know what, what, what what was that pathway for you did you always like when this person said hey you're good at this, this is a thing, I didn't even know it existed. And you were saying, well, I didn't know this was like, you know, you just kind of stumbled across it because it was natural to you. What's your pathway Ben? It's a very long, long question for a simple ask. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a really good
1: question and and I don't mean that in the flatter the host sense. Uh, it is a no, question me that I Yeah, yeah. Your your questions are so insightful. They're the most insightful ever. Yeah, best uh, ever. <laughs> everybody loves my questions. They tell me everybody, they tell me they're great. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> they're the best ever. Best ever. So, uh this is something that I still wrestle with because uh I realized that on the occasions when I've uh, had the opportunity to give advice to people who were younger and earlier in their careers, uh, that something I've said, and hopefully they ask for that advice and I wasn't that guy jumping in to give unsolicited advice. But uh, one of the things that I've said most often is that I wish that when I was younger, when I was earlier in my career, that I had put more focus and more time and energy toward maximizing my strengths and less toward improving my weaknesses. And that I I really wasted a lot of time and energy trying to do things that I wasn't good at and not enough on maximizing my unique comparative advantages. But, you know, okay, I've said that to younger people, but uh, while I'm not as young as I used to be, I'm not dead yet. And I'm still trying <laughs> to apply this in my own life, so I always want to check myself before I apply it to myself, and especially if I'm running around giving advice to people. Well, that advice may or may not be good advice. I stand by it for myself, but how would I give guidance to someone on how to evaluate and apply that advice for themselves is something that that I think about because. The extremes are easy, right? The, someone who never tries to improve their weaknesses, well, they're probably some sort of a delusional narcissist uh, and uh, uh, we wouldn't want to hire them or, or spend a lot of time around them. But on the other hand, someone who spends all their time focused on improving their weaknesses is probably setting themselves up for failure because they're not operating in their area of greatest advantage. So. Uh, so this idea of defining the extremes, and by the way, this is a technique I use a lot where there's gray area in the middle. You define the extremes and then work your way toward the middle. Uh, so in between these two extremes, there's some sort of economic calculation to be made to say, how do we allocate our scarce time and energy and and money, our, our stuff, toward becoming better at whatever our objectives are and in order to get to those objectives how much should i spend on maximizing my weaknesses how much should i spend on or maximizing my strengths rather how much should i work on improving my weaknesses and how much should i just ignore that and just work so I don't know if that makes sense as a way of sort of framing the, the oh, problem, but as you can see, I'm, I'm mental modeling this problem, uh, as, as I think
0: through it, I can kind of see in my mind's eye, you're talking and your eyes are all looking off to the distance as you're kind of processing. Well, one of the things that comes to mind to me as you're talking about this, you know, there's a lot of, um, I hate to say noise cause that sounds pejorative. I'll just say noise. I don't mean it to be critical, but there's a lot of noise Amongst younger people, especially younger people in the workforce about how much they hate their job, how brain dead the work is, how dehumanizing it is. Oh, corporations are terrible. Work is terrible. It's in its in its usually it sounds like that the general consensus is like, you know, quiet, quit, you know, just kind of take a paycheck and do as little as possible, Um, you you know, or like drop out and become an influencer and, you know, make YouTube videos and podcasts and Instagram photos. I don't know. But, the, but it seems like the response is if you're unhappy, it's because work in general stinks and you, and you should avoid doing it. What I'm wondering is where is the discussion of are you finding work that fits who you are? I, I, I don't think I hear that. This is very anecdotal. Like this is not scientific. But I just don't think I hear that conversation being either had with young people or amongst them and now am i just out of touch I'm, but i'm just wondering wouldn't that solve a lot of the problem like if you hate what you're doing is it possible that you're just fit into the wrong thing
1: that's a good uh that's a good distinction first of all uh of the two sides of what we could talk about here because uh my what I was talking about just now was not about whether I like what I'm doing or hate what I'm doing. It's about am I good at it or not. But there's a pretty high correlation, well, right? Between yeah, those for most people, right? I'm making, so uh, yeah, I was making a yeah.
0: jump. You're right. That's a good. That's a good thing to call. It. I was making the assumption. I was just kind of jumping forward without articulating that if I'm doing work that's that's I'm more suited to, I'm probably going to be more happy and fulfilled. It's probably not a hundred percent slam dunk on that, but more likely.
1: Well. There is some truth to that. And by the way, I I cite a lot of studies and and research that I've read in the past. I do this, I'll do this, I'm about to do this now, which I pointed out. I'm not an academic, I'm not a researcher. So most of the time when I'm reading things, I'm doing it for my own edification. So I don't keep citations. Uh, Unfortunately, I can't tell someone where uh, where my sources were on this. But uh, not uh, not intentionally uh, or to the point of mental modeling, but it just happened that around that same time, uh, I was asked to, uh, I was a partner in a, in a larger consulting firm, pre, pre-Northwood Advisors, and I was asked to uh, to speak at, at uh, like at an employee education seminar. And I don't remember the topic that I was assigned, but as part of that, I talked about happiness and I looked at some of the research on happiness and there's all kinds of stuff out there. So there's not like one right answer of what makes people happy, but there's a pretty compelling case to be made for what really leads to happiness is doing what we do well and seeing positive results. And I think that ties in really well with this idea of what you're saying, that the strengths and weaknesses that we have uh, and what we do, well and what we like to do and what makes us happy. Those, those go together, but I don't want to, I don't want to only limit it to that because I, you know, I, uh, I think there are people who for a whole variety of reasons are in jobs that they may not enjoy and they're in them for noble reasons. And so doing their job to the best of their ability, doing it well, uh, but not, not thinking that they're going to get ultimate satisfaction from their, their job is still a, a really, really noble thing. And, and I don't want to, uh, uh, I, I guess maybe I want to clarify what you were saying, but I don't think you were going down the road of saying people should only do what they like. Uh, that would be a, obviously a, a, a caricature no, of no. what you were saying. So maybe you could flesh out where you
0: were going with that. Well, I'm a big proponent of just follow your passion. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I've (laughs) I've, uh, invaded against that at times. No, I I was just thinking, uh, you know, you're right. I'm not saying that only do what you like. And I think my experience has been, and I'll back up in a second, my experience has been, even if I'm doing something I like, there are skills attendant to that that I need to acquire that might be painful to acquire, boring. You know, like I'm running my own business. Uh, I don't necessarily like invoicing, uh, but I do it, right? So I don't sit and go, well, this must not be right for me because I don't like doing it. Now, I could say, let me grow the business and hire someone to do it for me. But then there's a value proposition, a trade-off saying, well, I, don't, I also don't like having to manage a lot of people uh, as employees, so I don't want to do that. So anyway, no, I think what I'm getting at is just that is there a connection between this uh, dissatisfaction with people's work? And the fact that, you know, I'm asking the question, are they, are they doing work that doesn't suit them? Not doing work that they don't, doesn't, you know, they don't love or it's not their passion. You know, I don't want someone to listen to this and think, well, I love photography. So what Mike is really saying is until I do photography, I can't be fulfilled and I should only do photography. But at the same time, you know, I'm just wondering if, if you love telling a story, let's say, whether it's through images or video or audio, and and you're doing uh, bookkeeping for a giant corporation in a windowless cubicle. Yeah, uh, but there are other people who love bookkeeping. I mean, forget wh- what the setting is. And they're gonna be energized by doing that work. So you know, is the real issue not that corporations and work are evil and terrible, but that you're maybe doing the wrong kind of work based on how you're you're built now i have an underlying supposition which i think you would probably agree with which is people are designed humans are designed and and each of us are created you know by a creator to to engage in certain ways so certain people are great at some things and terrible at others and that's by design so that a that person can fit and b so that we learn to rely on each other uh that we have to be communal etc but that's that's a whole nother we can get into that but it's a whole nother discussion but yeah i i am in no way saying just do what makes you happy because i think that's that's backwards yeah
1: well let me give a personal example uh not to make this about me and my therapy session with mike but it might help us i think because i think we agree with each other so let's just make it concrete uh the the company that I was a partner in that I mentioned before, we, uh, it was CBH Consultants. We started the business uh, in 1996, sold it in 2007, uh, and somewhere early in that, uh, I want to say around 2000, 2001, maybe, uh, there were several partners, and the, the business model was that each partner managed a team of people, a very typical model. But I was, uh, but we also had titles. So it wasn't just partner and they were all uh, uh, the same job description. I was, I was the, the chief technology officer. I was responsible for innovation, for setting technical standards, for designing solutions, uh, that sort of thing. I found very quickly that management is not my strength. And not only do I not enjoy it, uh, it takes me a lot more time and energy to do certain management tasks, and and even no matter how much time and energy I put into them, I don't do them well. So that gets uh, that gets discouraging. And like if you know, uh, is Billy going to be on vacation next week? Well, I don't know. Ask Billy. Well, he works for you. You're supposed to know that. <laughs> That's not a fact that I hold in my head. And so I'd have to go look it up and uh, and maybe he's told me, but I didn't remember what week it was. Right. So some people are just really naturally better at that kind of management stuff. So I made the most brilliant executive decision in the history of uh, of American business when I went to my partners and said, I'm not leaving the company, but I quit. And that's exactly what I said, and uh, they were a little stunned, and I just said, I I, I need to do what I do well, which is the innovation and the solution design and setting technical standards and working uh, directly with clients to understand their needs and solve their problems, not be trying to remember whether Billy's going to be on vacation next week or not. Do you think...
0: Go ahead. Uh, Do you think the firm, your partners, and the people you were working with, were they aware that you were not performing? Like, were you still delivering on what you needed to, but it was at a great cost to you, or do you feel like you were doing a poor job? I was doing a poor job, and I think they were aware. I wasn't.
1: I I don't think they understood the nature of the problem. First of all, I didn't understand the nature of the problem. Uh, I'm optimistic about myself, and, uh, you know, uh, that, that's part of the problem. Sorry, I take a little rabbit trail and then come back to your question. You know, part of the problem on this whole area of strengths and weaknesses is we we have cognitive biases about
0: ourselves. And uh, there's well, a, my understanding there's, is that I don't have any cognitive biases, but other people do. I see them all the time.
1: <laughs> well, actually, bias is the reason that you sometimes don't agree with me because uh, <laughs> because of your your cognitive. I'm working bias. on that. I'm working yeah, on it. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, uh, so in fact, let, let me let can I just rabbit trail down this yeah, and then I come to, back to the question? Absolutely. Toys? So, so there is um a category of of these cognitive biases called motivated implicit theories of self, okay? So, a um, bunch of words to represent one word, but it breaks it down well. So, an implicit theory is something that we believe Without conscious articulation, so uh, it's really hard for us to question an implicit theory because we don't know we have it. We just it's just there in in the background uh, of our thinking without our awareness. And then the the fact that these are Im- implicit theories of self means it's things that we believe about ourselves without realizing it. And then the word motivated at the front of it means that they align with something that we want or some uh some value that we have so these are things that make us feel good about ourselves or confirm our self-image without us consciously being aware that it happens and so one example uh, of a of a motivated implicit theory of self is what's known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. And, oh, yeah. And a, yeah, yeah. So people tend to overestimate their own competence. And I'm certainly guilty of that. And I was back in this example that, that we are talking about. I really thought that I could be a good manager and also uh, keep doing the uh, the technical side of my job and the innovation. And it turns out I was wrong. And it's good that... that uh, that I recognized it and didn 't keep going down that path, because not only was I a bad manager, as I said before, it consumed way more time and energy, so someone else could get their management tasks done in one hour a day, and it would take me four or five hours a day to still do a poor job at it, and so i wasn 't able to get the rest of my job done either, and so I think that that my partners in the business were frustrated with me and the poor job that I was doing but I don't think they understood why until I recognized it myself and, and brought it to them uh in a and when I reached that point I was so frustrated that's why I just walked in and said I'm not leaving the company but I quit yeah, it wasn't would, a, it wasn't a discussion if I had recognized it sooner I would have approached it differently and and had a hey guys what do you think How it had we to come solve to a this? crisis moment yeah yeah And part of that crisis was my reluctance to admit that I wasn't good at something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's natural. Like you said, that's natural. You know, it's interesting too, because at the same time, the work, and this isn't going to be everybody's situation that comes this moment, but the work that you are more wired for is, is really transformational work. Like I can come in understand a problem create solutions i mean these are all rep this creates revenue for the company i can help win clients and build relationships so if i'm anchored down doing stuff that's really more i'll call it tactical or transactional you know did paul come in did he clock in did he submit his hours hey did you get that deliverable done i mean those are important things someone has to keep the machine boiled and running but like to what end? And uh, if that's the purpose, you're kind of missing the point of the business. So so to get freed up to do that more transformational work is important. I, I would imagine your partners recognized that, yeah, we need you on this higher level, higher value work. How did the story end?
1: Yeah, that, that uh, that's exactly what happened. So uh, I really, you know, I was still a partner in the in the business because I was one of the principals and I was still the chief technology officer But I didn't have uh, a team of resources reporting directly to me. I had people reporting indirectly, but they were uh, in their day-to-day reporting. They were managed by someone else. And we... Grew the business and uh and had a successful exit uh in, in two thousand seven. So I call that a win. Yeah. I don't I want to agree. take all the credit. My partners did contribute in some small way, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> no no cognitive bias there at all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's it's hard too, and I find um in i'm thinking organizationally now, the the higher up you get in an organization, whether it's a big or small organization, it's harder to get the feedback that tells you what you need to know. So when you're signing the checks in an organization, you know, people, they laugh at your jokes. All your jokes are funny. Um, they put up with your, uh, you know, if you're late to meetings, they don't give you they don't criticize you, you know, like, so you have this kind of, you're lacking a feedback loop that tells you, Hey, I need to moderate or change my behavior because it's not working, um, so to be able to get to that moment of self awareness is important. And I also like as a as I get older, you know, there's this other dynamic where uh, you know, hey, I've I've done all the hard work, uh, I, I know all this stuff, I don't have to prove myself to anyone. So you kind of give yourself you can you run the r- danger risk of giving yourself a pass when really you want to hold yourself accountable. So you're not getting the kind of feedback that you, that, you would, that you might benefit from. Plus, you're at a stage of life where it's, you, you have all this momentum behind you. Why wouldn't you coast a little bit? Like you know, why, why would I try to teach myself a brand-new programming language? That's what you do when you're young. Um, I'm not advocating for someone doing that. I just mean to say you can kind of trade on all the momentum and equity you've built throughout your career. And I think that's dangerous. Uh, I don't think you have to stay paranoid. And uh, learn every new thing that comes out there. But how do you stay limber? How do you how do you continue to grow? How do you identify like you did in that circumstance? Hey, I don't think I'm good at this. It's not just a matter of I don't like it, but I should not be doing this. I need to make a change.
1: When I think back to uh, not the time that we were just talking about, but when I talk about even earlier in my career, uh, you know, 10, 10 years, let's say for before that time when I was a partner in a company and and had some of that insight. If I think back to the times when I didn't understand it and I know that I spent too much time trying to work on my weaknesses, my motivations were wrong. So that's one of the factors that I think is really important in assessing the this trade-off of maximizing strength versus working on weaknesses. So the the thing about the motivation, it's harder to see good motivation for the same cognitive bias reasons. We always tend to to think good of ourselves. But if we really sit back and uh, do some thoughtful self-examination, it's easier to often uncover bad motivations. And I would say bad motivations for trying to work on our weaknesses fall into a few categories that I can think of and you, and you might have have some additional ones or some nuances on these. So one is one is copying others. If I see someone uh that's good at something and I think, well, they're good at that, so I should be good at that too. Well, they're they're not me, right? They have a completely different set of of uh skills, traits, motivations, all of these things. Uh, and this is maybe a, a a silly example, but there are all these motivational, uh, I'm sorry, all these business books that that talk about manage like so-and-so, manage like Steve Jobs. That's the yeah. one I like to pick yeah. on, right? Um, well, Steve Jobs was incredibly successful, super, incredibly talented, incredibly intelligent, all of those things. But he was also really, really lucky in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, and he ran a high risk business with a high risk management style. And, uh, you know, he was a jerk to people. And he was, you know, all of these things. Um, and. No one else is Steve Jobs. So I'm not trying to belittle him. Obviously, who, who am I to, to put down Steve Jobs? That's not my intent.
0: No, but, but my what point I, is... Go ahead, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I just to say, you, I, what I hear you saying is, yeah, taking nothing away from Steve Jobs, the way he managed is irrelevant to your life. I mean, you might learn a thing or two looking at his life. That's why we read biographies. But, but, but his way of doing things isn't your secret to success. It's not necessarily relevant.
1: Yeah, and the survivorship bias that goes right. along with that, right? That there may be there may be a thousand other people who did exactly the same management techniques that Steve Jobs did, and their businesses failed, and we just don't know about well, that because they yeah. failed.
0: And, and we're assuming that because he's a hard nosed jerk to everybody and pulls no p- punches, look how successful he is. Maybe. He's so successful, he can get away with being a hard-nosed jerk and pulling no punches. I mean, you, you, yeah, yeah. We're kind of looking backwards, going, "Well, gee, this is how he." Well, we don't know. I mean, I think he was pretty mercenary throughout his life, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what led to his, you know, this management style that's so yeah. successful. Yeah. Well taken. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, uh, and, and to take it away from the Steve Jobs example, I, you know, I can think of of times where. Uh, I saw someone who was uh, you know in in sales and they were they were successful and effective and as an entrepreneur uh, sales is not my strength, but I have to sell and I tried to copy someone else 's style of selling and uh, and it just didn 't work well I had someone who was able to give me some good advice and he said those guys sell with that style because they 're they're salespeople, and that's what they do. You're, you're the person who can solve the problems, and you should sell based on who you are, not trying to copy what, what they do. And I was like, oh, that's a really good point. Thank you for that. Right. <laughs> and yeah. so, so some of those key insights. So, if you're trying to copy others, that can be a suspect uh, motivation. Another, another motivation to check for is just insecurity. Uh, it's great, to, it's great to improve, but are you, are you just insecure and uh, rather than having a goal of better at things to achieve good outcomes, it's because you want uh, other people to, to like you more or uh, not that that in and of itself is a bad motivation, but, but there's a, you know, a level of that can, that can be healthy and there's a level of that that can be born out of insecurity. Um, another mode, let me just list a couple and then you can, you can react. Uh, another one would be wishful thinking. Like I might be trying to, to work on a, a weakness, that uh or something i perceive as a weakness and i wish i was better at but it's just completely unattainable you know and and we think back to uh certainly when i was a boy and, and lots of lots of folks boys or girls could you know have this idea that they're going to be the the next sports star whether it's the basketball player or the soccer <laughs> right. player or right. whatever right and that's great when you're when you're a kid and and some very small percentage of them make it but when when you become an adult you you got to be more realistic about those things and so taking that that uh, extreme example, but thinking, are my motivations for wanting to improve my weaknesses just wishful thinking? Like if I oh, I'm gonna stop being the technical guy and I'm gonna be the good manager, uh, could I have made some progress? Yeah, would I have ever been able to be as good at managing uh, as someone who had more natural skills in that area? Uh, probably not. So, uh, yeah, and in so, wishful
0: thinking and that might be, um, Hey, if I can get to be a good manager in my own small, I don't mean tiny, but just my own small consulting firm, maybe I can leverage that to be a good manager at a fortune 50 where I've got, you know, a, a division with a thousand people that I, that answer to me. That that, yeah. that to me would be wishful. Th- it's like, why? That just seems fantastical. Why would you, that, it just seems nuts. It's yeah. kind of like the kid that thinks he's going to get scouted uh, to play for the Buffalo Bills because he's throwing a football in his front yard and his uncle's cousin has a buddy type thing uh, that might see me.
1: Yeah. And the same thing applies to to life circumstances. You know, there are people who either because of just their practical circumstances or their values, uh, they're able to or they choose to, you know, work 80 hours a week and uh, live on the road or uh, whatever, whatever choices they make. Uh, and for other people, that's, that's not consistent with their place in life or their, or their values. And so it's wishful thinking to believe that you're going to be able to do the same in 40 hours a week with limited travel as someone who can live on the road, work 80 hours a week, uh, and all of those things, and that that ties to both life station as well as some people have you know some people are type a and they're they 're driven and they they thrive on that level of of activity and other people aren 't and so uh, anyway the the wishful thinking I think can take a, a number of of different uh, forms, but it 's a pretty pretty broad category so actually as i take these ideas and I think through a mental model in my head, uh, some of which I've thought through before and some of which I'm, I'm, uh, building on the fly here. But one of the things that's really helpful for a mental model is to have, have, uh, like memorable labels for things, just like, uh, you know, we give on a map, think places have place names, not just a description of the place, right. To to use that, that metaphor. So Take some of these motivations and even some of the other factors, and maybe sort of rephrase them into into questions or uh, or, or tag phrases, so I would think through uh, the the wishful thinking and rephrase that to uh, take a reality check, which can include wishful thinking, but uh, are, you know are you swinging for the fences without a lot of uh, uh, likelihood of success and And why are you doing that? If it's a hobby, if it's something that you're doing because you like the try, I mean, I'm all about trying things and failing to see what works, but uh, that that doesn't work in every area of life. Because another one of these factors to consider is, is it sustainable, right? If you're putting all this time and effort into uh, working on your weaknesses, but the amount of effort that it would take is more than you can expend. expend uh, then you really—I ha- I would think of it this way, right? Because we tend to be optim—people in general tend to be optimists about themselves, and we tend to think. Uh, uh, actually, I was gonna. I was gonna. I'm. I'm Got so many thoughts. I'm was about to go down a different rabbit trail. Let me let me finish this thought and then, then I'll take the rabbit trail. So we should ask the question, if it takes 10 times longer than I think it's going to and I'm only able to get half as good as I'd like to be at whatever this weakness is, uh, am I okay with that? Uh, you count the cost physically, psychologically, practically and say, can I sustain this effort if uh, if it takes ten times longer and I'm really only able to get half as good as I'd like to be? Uh, does that uh, I'm I'm talking about a lot of stuff here. I should pause and give you a chance to react.
0: No, it's good. I'm I'm taking in wh- wh- where my mind was going while you're talking is okay. Even even in these models, though, you're trying to assess you know the realistic. Uh, how realistic is this? How sustainable is this, et how do you How do you account for, defend against, flush out the Dunning-Kruger effect where even in my assessments, I'm assuming I'm overestimating potentially my own ability. So I go, is this realistic? Well, I know it's kind of crazy, but I think I can do it. Like, how do you, how does one account for the Dunning-Kruger effect?
1: Uh, you, you just have to be aware of it. Uh, there are a few other, few other things, but the Dunning-Kruger effect is one of those motivated implicit theories of self. Let me mention a couple others. This is the rabbit trail I almost took myself down because <laughs> that's not the only one. There are a couple others, and some of these motivated implicit theories of self uh, are actually contradictory because, People are different. Uh, and we also have the ability to hold contradictory things in our head, uh, even for the same person. But um, a lot of people have a belief in fixed traits. Uh, they think, well, I took an IQ test and it was, you know, it said I'm above average or I'm below average, and that's fixed. Uh, and uh, I'm not a psychologist. Uh, I'm not going to get into the debate of whether IQ is a fixed trait. But what I would say is uh, it doesn't have to be a limiting trait uh, the way it often is considered. Or people think that their personality uh, is a fixed trait. They've taken the Myers-Briggs test, which can be a helpful thing. I'm sure you're familiar with that. A lot of folks are. And it gives you a personality profile. Or people do the uh, the uh, strength finders test, which I actually think is great. Uh, I, I've taken that a couple times uh, in my life with... Um, uh, employers or even one of my clients had the, everyone on their team take the strengths finders and they they offered it to me, so I took it and uh, um, interesting though I've taken the Myers Briggs I think three times in my life at, uh, at the request of, of employers or prospective employers. I've done strengths finders twice, and I don't always get the same result it's not exactly this uh it's not entirely different but it's not exactly the same so clearly these are not fixed traits they can they can flex over time. They probably vary from day to day. So I think that these kinds of assessments are helpful. And I encourage folks to to, to use them to get some insight, but don't uh, believe in them as, as fixed traits. And also messages that you got from parents or teachers or other people when you were young of this is what you're good at, or that's what you're good at. Take all that in as, uh, as good input. But uh, but also sift it and see see what really really sticks. But to go back to answer your question, Mike, of what do you do about these things? The answer is accept that you have these cognitive biases like uh, a belief in fixed traits or like the Dunning-Kruger effect, Uh, or there's actually one more that's very, very common. In fact, when it comes to strengths and weaknesses, specifically, one of the most common implicit theories that people have about themselves is that my weaknesses are malleable, but my strengths are fixed. And oh, yeah. when I think of myself, that's exactly what I had when I was younger, where I thought, well, my strengths are my strengths. I don't need to work on them, but I've got all these weaknesses. Let me work on those. Uh, and it turned out that, that that just wasn't true, at least not entirely true. So... So across these different things, what we have to do is try to recognize our cognitive biases and understand that we have them and constantly be checking ourselves, but not kid ourselves that we can get rid of them. We can't get rid of the Dunning effect. It's always there. We can't get rid of of the tendency to think implicitly that my weaknesses are malleable, that my strengths are in some cases, or that, you know, what my parents said was true about what I'm good at or or
0: bad at or whatever. You see, I I agree. I think that's, I think that's really well said because, you know, my question was, well, how do you, how do you make it go away kind of thing? But really, you you just have to understand, you see it actually in the practical world. You, if you've ever done contracting or you bring a contractor in, I'm talking about to work on a job on your house, when they estimate, they go, yeah, it's probably going to, now the good ones, the good ones say, it's probably going to take, You know, this much time and this much um, in materials. And the smart ones say, let me double that. Let me triple that. Or let me, you know, there's a multiplier because they know they're going to overestimate how quickly the job will go and how little resources they're going to need. And it's not just, I mean, some of it's, you know, hey, calendar blew up. It was raining. We couldn't paint the house. I mean, there's some of that. You have to have a fudge factor. But I think the good ones... They've just kind of baked this implicitly into their system, meaning, yeah, you're always going to overestimate your abilities. You're going to underestimate the obstacles and you're going to underestimate, you know, the materials that you're going to need. And so you have to account for it. Otherwise, you're going to go out of business. So that, I think to me, that's a real world example uh, where there's a system kind of built in or a multiplier, if you will, to protect against that. They're just recognizing it's there. They don't call it the Dunning-Kruger, obviously, most of them, mm. I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh so yeah, I I think but there are a couple of ways to try to get objective about it and um there are two that I can think of and I'd love I'd love for you to extend this. So so one is um to really I uh, I'll talk about process uh maybe at the end. So because there are some process things, but it, uh, to try to at least keep this somewhat clear in the, the swirling mass of thoughts in my head. Uh, I'll, I'll set that aside. So one thing to think about is who benefits? Is this, Is making this change something that's just going to benefit me? Or is it both in terms of motivation and expected practical result, something that's going to benefit others? And I don't want to be I'm not making a moral judgment of you should only do things that don't benefit you and only benefit others. Uh, I'm just saying that as a as a part of the reality check, think through that and you ask yourself. It. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Just be, be crystal clear. Be honest with yourself of, of I'm doing this for the benefit of whom? Uh, is it for myself? If I make this change for myself, what's the Immediate benefit to others, what's the long term benefit to others? Uh and 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 just try to be honest about it. Um getting feedback from other people can be a mixed bag. Uh so I, I would certainly say, you know, working these things out in community with people you can uh that you can trust is great, but uh when you ask people, you know, hey, tell me what tell me my strengths and weaknesses, you you might uh you might have folks who are really good at giving you that kind of information, uh, but you, you might not. So you've gotta I, I actually got some really, really good advice from someone years ago that I, I've never forgotten and I, I think of it often. He when he uh talked about getting advice from other people, he said uh, you know, think of yourself like you're uh you're a gold miner and you're out there in a in a river uh, with your little pan and you're panning for gold. Uh, and he's like, you, you keep scooping up rocks and mud and washing them away. And you're just looking for that little flake or that nugget of gold. And that's how you should be when you get advice feedback from people most of it just washes through your pan and you let it go downstream but you're still but you still take it in you don't reject it you right. don't uh, you don't throw it away just because you, you you put it in your pan you swirl it around and you look to see what's the nugget of gold that that's in the perspective that person is sharing with me and uh, that that's really helped me a lot because sometimes it is hard to get feedback sometimes uh, it's hard to receive criticism uh, but there's often that flake of gold in there, even if if most of it you just uh, swirl it around and let it wash away.
0: Yeah, and you have to. It's hard too because people. I mean, some people just want to give you good feedback, but a lot of people, you know, we're we're all motivated by various things, and their interests aren't always the same. I've observed bosses, uh, managers, you know, not wanting to give certain feedback or or giving other feedback not because they thought the employee needed it, because they're like, for instance, like, well, don't don't encourage him to get involved in this because we'll lose him <laughs> you know you essentially like don't encourage him to get involved in this thing that's a strength that he'd probably be good at because we don't want to lose him in this job he's doing for me right now
1: right um, or, yeah. or
0: sometimes you know you go to somebody and say hey I'm doing this job I I'm kind of interested in going a different direction it's not that they're being manipulative but like they have a hard time envisioning you different they know you in this context and so they're like oh no you know, don't do that. Like, why would you like, but really it's, they don't realize that they're just saying, don't change my, my relationship with you. Don't change my world. It's not hostile or manipulative. It's just, it's hard. It's just hard. So that, that can be kind of dicey. I think it's really good advice to, to, to approach it that there's going to be gold in there, but you gotta, you gotta swirl through a lot of grit and mud to get to it.
1: Yeah. Uh and one of the most objective ways of assessing things, though, is is counting the money. Uh, and so, uh, tell me more. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you're assessing strengths and weaknesses, uh, just you know, money is a, is a method of scorekeeping, uh, and uh, in the sense of adding value, right? Uh, obviously, we know there are exceptions, and uh, and so I'm not trying to uh, get into a whole sociological discussion, but. In general, when you create value, you get rewarded. Uh, when you consume value, you, you have to pay. Uh, and, and so if I'm looking at using my strengths versus working on my weaknesses, uh, doing the economic calculation of what's that going to cost me to put in the time working on my weaknesses, if I improve in these certain areas, what would, what would the benefit be? And uh, if I focus on my strengths where where I have some natural advantage, uh, you know, what's the what's the financial upside of that? And and sometimes we can uh, forecast and anticipate that's what the what that's going to be. But then we can look at the real world and say, well, this is what uh, this is what actually happened. So counting the money is a good way to assess these decisions, not that money is the be-all and end-all, but it is a good uh, a good scoreboard.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a uh, it's it's feedback. I mean, if yeah, yeah, it's good feedback. So, Myron, you had said, hey, I also have a process piece to this. I mean, I, I, are we in that part of the conversation right now? Is there another? Oh, sure. We we can be whatever part of the conversation. Yeah, like It's if your podcast. You, well, you, well, no. Me. All I meant to say was I didn't want to. I wasn't certain if we were there yet, but I I, I want because I, I would assume people are saying, OK, this is great. Like, and it's good advice. But if there's if there's a process or a system, I want to hear it. Yeah. 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 Uh,
1: This is all, uh, I guess, stuff that I'm fleshing out. So this is as far along as I have the mental model and talking through it's helpful. But when when I talk about the process, uh, very specifically, I think that people need to try to be scientific with themselves. Now, we can't do scientific experiments uh, where n equals one, every person's different, every situation's different. So what do I mean by that? If I'm working on... Uh, improving a weakness or any change i 'm trying to make in my life, bringing that into the the system the human systems of my life is really where it gets tested right. I can get around and uh, uh, on my own try to be better at something, but then when i 'm uh, in both the the positive and negative of what it means to be in community or or in relationship with other people, so you go in you know, you want to be. Uh, I'll just, I'll just pick a, a, a simple weakness. So someone who wants to, um, ask better questions in meetings, uh, and thinks that that's a, something they should work on. Well, they shouldn't just say that they're going to do that. They should, uh, prepare The questions that they think they might ask before a meeting, they should try to think through in their mind. So when I ask these questions, what do I think is going to happen? And then, when they get out of the meeting, spend some time evaluating how did that go, and what do I think I could have or should have done better? And this is a technique that uh, I I don't apply as uh, a process that I don't apply as uh, uh, often as I should, but I have been doing it for uh, probably uh, over 20 years uh, since someone helped me see that this is a good way to to make change in your lives. And, and it's not a quick fix. Don't expect a quick fix. You've got to keep at it. And so it can take months, it can take years. But then you look back and you see, wow, I've, I've really made a change. So when I think about process, the cornerstone of it is going to be that uh, setting the expectation of if I make change and I test it in the system with these other people. What do I think is going to happen? Then evaluating and making course corrections for how would I, uh, how would I do it different next time? And then you just keep repeating that over and over.
0: That's awesome. So if there was a Myron Weber in your life, this is kind of my, I guess is my closing question. If there's a Myron Weber in your life, 30. Well, you're young. You just started your career, right? <laughs> Let's say 30 <laughs> years ago. I don't know when you got started, but we're, I think we're similar in age. What yeah, would you we, have advised so. him back then? What would you have told yourself back then based on this discussion today? I, I absolutely
1: stand by what I've what I've said, uh, which is I wish I had spent more time uh, exploiting and maximizing my strengths and less time focused on my weaknesses, particularly those weaknesses that I saw by comparing myself to other people who weren't trying to do the same thing I was trying to do, weren't trying to, uh, you know, achieve the same things. And I just thought that I needed to be more like those other people and, and wasted, So much time and energy. So for myself, I I absolutely stand by that. But that may not be the right advice for everyone, which is why I tried to extend it. And it may not be the right thing for me at this point in my life. So that's why I tried to create this model for doing that sort of evaluation rather than a blanket piece of advice that everyone applies to everyone for all time.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's really good, Myron. Thanks for joining me. How do people get in touch? You you open saying, "Hey, uh, we're open for business here at Northwood." How do people get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, uh, my email address is mweber. It's with one b, so it's m w e b e r at northwood ad- But I'm also easy to find on LinkedIn, uh, Myron Weber, not too many of Myron Weber's on there. And you look for the one that's Northwood Advisors, and you can connect with me there. And uh, I, you know, if anyone wants to talk about these kinds of topics uh, with me, I'm always up for that, uh, whether it's just a, a, a peer discussion of talking about it, or if someone says, hey, I could use some, you know, yeah. I, I'm I'm working through this, and I'd love to talk about it. Uh, I don't want to say like looking for advice because that seems one up and one down. But I'm just saying to have a conversation about these topics. But also, uh, you know, I talked about Northwood Advisors and the kinds of uh, data problems that that we solve. And anyone can reach out if if you got a problem and it's not a good fit for me, I'll try to steer you in the direction of some some right resources. Uh, uh, I like talking about those kinds of things because. Uh, I'm in this line of work because I enjoy it. Going back to something we talked about earlier. This really is something yeah. I enjoy. I love yeah. I love uh solving problems. I love working with uh with data and and the consulting side means I'm not just uh I'm not just doing the technical stuff, I'm doing it in uh in the system with people and organizations and so uh so I guess my point is anyone can reach out to me for a conversation about any of those things it doesn't you don't have to have a project teed up that, that you need me to work on to have the conversation
0: yeah thanks myron and i will make sure to put myron's contact info in the show notes just go to the currency dot show forward slash episode 133 and you can get that info there and i can tell you from firsthand experience myron is A wonderful conversation partner, a gracious individual, and brilliant. So I think uh, if you are interested, you ought to reach out. it would be a good experience. So that is, uh, I don't know if you can hear in the background, Isabella barking. I think she's letting us know the show's wrapping up. Guys, thanks so much for listening. I love you all, and I'll catch you in the next episode.